Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Hub Roundtable, joined today by Sean Spear. We're going to go mano a mano. Uh, Stuart Thompson offered a deserved vacation in this, the dog days of August. How are you doing, Sean? Where are you coming into us from? Yeah, great to connect as always, Rudyard. Um, I'm speaking to you from Lorignal, Ontario, Moose, as it's uh, as it translates to in English. Uh, it's a nice day. I'm off to the Vankley Kill Fair uh, for a demolition derby this weekend. H- how about you? Nice. No demolition derbies uh, in my future here. I'm just pondering the uh, endless uh, budget smoke signals coming out of the Olivia Chow government uh, in downtown Toronto as I record this podcast from the deep bastions of uh, progressive culture, the heart of the annex. Uh, People who know that neighborhood would know of what I speak, but it looks like, Sean, we're going to get whacked by a whole bunch of new taxes. So I'm just, uh, I don't know, I'll be looking for some whiskey or something this weekend to uh, <laughs> digest all this. But let's start. With, I want to kick some dots with you to begin on the show this week, Sean. We, we've, I think we have a new amusing hysteria that is growing in the country among some uh, elite circles. It was flagged, uh, I think, kind of officially by um, uh, Jolie, our foreign affairs. I don't know what it's called anymore. Global affairs, external affairs minister saying in a sense they're going through scenario planning for uh, a kind of political convulsion in the United States. They're kind of looking at all eventualities, contingencies, and one that seems to have come to the top of the government's mind. And it seems to have also fixated a couple of commentators is this idea of a, a mass exodus of American refugees a la the <laughs> revolutionary wars of the late uh, 18th century um, a new wave of united empire loyalists streaming <laughs> up into these northern climes to enjoy higher taxes lower productivity you know the dulcet tones of the cbc sean it's it's all on offer what do you make of this i've got a few theories but it's just I bring it up because it just seems just so utterly bizarre. Yeah, let's take, first of all, seriously, the idea that the Canadian government is is doing some contingency planning uh, in advance of the next presidential election. You know, there's something to that line of thinking. We uh, we were surprised, of course, when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, uh, his administration had um, makings uh, in terms of uh, North American uh, trade flows, ultimately the renegotiation of the, of the NAFTA. Um, it makes sense uh, that government policymakers would be 
preparing for possible changes in American policy and how it may affect uh, Canada's economy or national security or, or whatever. Um, that said, um, the idea that the Canadian government is preparing for possible political refugees and the foreign affairs minister is actually talking about that uh, in the public. I mean, first of all, it seems kind of patently absurd on its face. But second, you know, what does it say about a government that may have to have a relationship with an incoming administration um, with whom it may disagree on ideology or whatever? Um, but the idea that it would characterize such an administration as so um, outside the bounds of democratic norms um, that Canada would seriously consider uh, uh, incoming uh, um, migrants as, as refugees, it just seems to me reflects a kind of unseriousness um, um, that doesn't serve Canadian interests at all vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. So what, what's your sense? What's your take? Well, some contingency planning absolutely would make sense, say, on the trade front. As you mentioned, we were blindsided to some degree on that. Um, maybe issues around, you know, continental defense. A second uh, Trump administration could, you know, elicit a lot of chaos. There's no doubt about that. I, what I just find interesting about this is that it's like a, it's just a very specific Canadian kind of mind bomb that uh, that this story represents, which I just I, I enjoy kind of toying with because it's this it's this again this supreme Canadian conceit yes. that we are somehow here in the northern half of North America um, a society that's organized and constructed along lines that are just quite simply superior to the United States. It's, it's, a, it's a superiority complex, which would be fine if it was qualitative and quantitatively demonstrated in any set of data or proof points. And what it gets to, and again, I don't want to over psychoanalyze here, but I mean, there's some, this has been a tough six months for the country. Um, we've, uh, I think, come to a national reckoning on productivity. I think people have come around to realize that we have a productivity crisis in this country. Last in the OECD for projections over productivity gains and per capita, uh, uh, you know, GDP growth over the next ensuing decades. We've had, I think, an increasingly, um, uh, you know, at times difficult but necessary conversation about how mass immigration on the scale that has been practiced over the last 18 months has, has really failed as a public policy, uh, not simply for the country and possibly for labor markets, but for many of the immigrants that we're bringing here increasingly under false pretenses. Um, our media arguably is in a kind of collapse. This is a very difficult moment for the country. And instead of I don't know, some kind of self-reckoning, we're now engaged in this lovely Canadian pastime of looking down our noses at these dirty, chaotic, uh, messy, bigoted, racist, you know, Americans who are just desperate to resume the journey of their forebears to what Gore Vidal described Canada, Canada as, I always loved this, this, uh, 
alliteration, the lady of the snows. So they're all going to come up here to the lady of the snows, abandoning the United States in the face of, you know, some apocalyptic uh, second Trump administration. God, give me a break. Yeah. Don't, don't you know, Roger, the arc of history points in the direction of, of Canada, of course. Um, but, but in all seriousness, one of the things that frustrates me about this talk of political refugees coming from the United States to Canada is it fails the kind of basic responsibility of policymakers and thinking people to uh, to be able to accept that two things can be true at the same time. Donald Trump can be a abhorrent political figure whose form of politics uh, is um you know, dark and negative and all the rest. Um, if listeners want to hear us um, clear our throats about that, I'm I'm pleased to. You know, I, it would clearly be better for Canada, and I would argue for the United States if he, um, if he wasn't elected uh, president. On the same token, the idea that there are going to be migration claims, refugee claims, asylum claims coming from the United States, and that we would consider them under our basic model of of refugee determination it seems to me Rudyard actually um kind of erodes the basic idea of of refugees you, you, you know we the whole system is designed to um protect people from violence political persecution um and, and all the rest and you know if we're going to now claim that progressives who don't like Donald Trump's form of politics or whatever uh, ought to be considered as refugees. I think, as I say, it does harm to the in entire system. So um, I, I don't know what to make of it. It may just be that this is, you know, an enterprising reporter in August, you know, managing to get something out of a, out of a politician. It may be, as you say, reflect a kind of deeper ideological view uh, about the superiority of Canadian society. Or, and this is, I think, the, the, the key point, we may start to see uh, the Trudeau government run uh, essentially against Donald Trump more and more in the coming weeks and months. Just keep in mind that should he become the Republican nominee, which all things being equal seems likely, we'll have a U.S. presidential election likely prior to a Canadian federal election. And I think there'll be an effort to try to effectively connect Donald Trump's politics with Pierre Paglia's politics. Um, and, and so I think this is the beginning, it seems to me, of the, the, the liberals playing a kind of dangerous game because, you know, as um, Brian, Mulroney used, Brian Mulroney used to say, the most amongst the most important responsibilities of the prime minister and the government is to manage the relation, Canada's relationship with the United States. And if the, the liberals turn um, Donald Trump and U.S. politics into a, a wedge for domestic purposes, it seems to me, as I was saying earlier, um, it could be to the detriment of the country's interests. Great insights. Yeah, I think uh, running against Donald Trump could be a winning political play. Let's continue to watch that. But right now, let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to fit three topics in today's show. You're going to want to miss this one. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. 
This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large. Stuart Thompson is off this week. Well, Sean, I want to um, fit three topics, as I said, into the show. So a bit of rapid fire back and forth. Um, and it's important, I think, for us to reflect uh, a week or so on a, a little bit about these new proposed regulations that the federal government has rolled out that affect uh, passion in Canada. Uh, effectively saying that uh, uh, existing uh, carbon-based forms of power generation, most notably in Canada, natural gas, that was built before 2025, um, you know, will be grandfathered into our future kind of energy mix and composition, but starting as soon as 2025, so two short years from now, any new plants that are built would require a, I guess, a sophisticated system of capturing and storing uh, the carbon that they emit. Um, I was surprised by this, Sean, because it seems to uh, amp up the regional kind of divisions and tensions in Canada around yes. climate, around energy. Uh, so let's get into this. What's at the root of this and why I've got my own theories. I want to hear yours. Why could many people in Western Canada, especially Alberta, look at this as a pretty unfair and biased approach to, you know, decarbonization that foists the majority of the bus onto uh, the West and in a sense privileges or favors uh, the economies of Ontario and Quebec that have for reasons completely unrelated to any decarbonization agenda that we have now. They just simply have a different kind of energy composition in terms of how we're powering um, our societies here in the East. Yeah, Ottawa's electricity regulations um, have been anticipated for some time. And as you say, they they were finally released uh, last week. Um, the ambition for net zero emissions uh, or non-emitting electricity um, uh, is, is set now for 2035. Um, although listeners will know that our broader net zero target um, doesn't isn't set until 2050. So this is a, a kind of accelerated goal um, as it relates narrowly to electricity, but of course, electricity is foundational to <laughs> all of our other uh, um, in environmental and economic uh, objectives. So it's it's a it's a big deal. Um, you mentioned the the asymmetrical effect that these regulations will have 
on different provinces across the country. This point is worth underscoring. Overall, uh, about 80% of energy in Canada comes from non-emitting or or low-emitting sources. That's principally because, as you say, hydroelectricity is so abundant in some parts of the country, including Ontario, Manitoba, Quebec, and so on. Um, and there obviously nuclear power in Ontario, um, baseload, something that, again, is a legacy decision that was made by governments decades ago, completely unconnected from any agenda or awareness around decarbonization. But but several provinces, including the province of Alberta, um, their energy systems are highly dependent on um, non-renewable sources. Um, and so going from where they are relative to the target of net zero um, to that that goal by, by 2035 um, is a, not just ambitious, you know, to be frank, seemingly implausible target i mean it the the not only would the the cost um to get provinces like alberta and saskatchewan from where they stand now which is something like 20 or 30 percent uh renewable energy to 100 percent in 12 or 13 years not only would the cost be astronomical um we just have no track record roger it is something we've talked about on the past of building um massive infrastructure in in those time frames so um, you know, I think the best that could be said about the regulations is that they are aspirational, not practical. But the worst, and I'll, I'll turn it to you, is that they seem to have been conceived in a way that, um, at, at least as a matter of politics, can be perceived as um, dis being disproportionate uh, to provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I think we've seen that play out um, in, in the past week or so with comments from um, Premier Daniel Smith and Premier Scott Moe. Just one final point, and this is for our the legal minds and constitutional minds who listen to the Hub Roundtable every Friday. There are also big questions about the constitutionality of this. Can Ottawa ultimately uh, impose these regulations on the provinces, given that um, electricity and energy uh, is is broadly viewed as, as a provincial matter? So uh, this is a big deal um, uh, as a matter of politics, as a matter of law, as a matter of economics, and then ultimately as a matter of, of the environment. Yeah, and look, the, the key part of this, because we've been uh, doing some uh, podcasts with uh, Pathways, which is the the industry group of the, the kind of largest uh, oil sands providers who producers who are you know, committed to uh, net zero from operations by 2050. And the big, like, key piece of their strategies and in industry is carbon sequestration. So this is, you know, capture and storage. And the big thing I've heard in doing these podcasts with Pathways, talking to labor, talking to industry, um, talking to people representing First Nations communities is we are simply not uh, anywhere close to certainty or anything approaching certainty on a regulatory process and timeline to even start building. And these are big, multi, multi-billion dollar uh, facilities. Carbon sequestration is a complex technology, is a new technology. It is going to take time. And these are not, you know, these are not small things, okay? These are big, complex um, mechanical systems. 
you're saying that any new natural gas power production in Alberta, let's take that as an example, has to have carbon sequestration attached to it. And you haven't even approved the technology. You haven't produced it at scale. It, it, just, I don't know. I It strikes me as... Um, it reminds me a little bit of the kind of the United States policy towards China to be provocative here. It's almost like a, it's like an, it's saying to part of the country, your growth is going to be capped because without energy, you're not going to have growth. How are you going to have population growth? If your energy costs are, are in a sense, not only going to go up, you're just simply not going to have the energy to uh, provide the requisite uh, supply to meet the demand of the growth projections that you have for your jurisdiction. And this is largely, you know, in a variety of ways, what the United States is kind of doing with China around a whole series of technologies and alliances that it's building with, with different countries. And you could say, hey, that's great. The United States is in a peer peer-to-peer geopolitical battle for the commanding heights of the 21st century, but what the heck is Ottawa? you know, here for, uh, are we really going to say to Alberta, your growth is capped. You're in a sense, subject to a policy of containment. Meanwhile, especially here in Ontario, where I'm recording from limitless immigration, we're just going to flood the zone with, uh, as many immigrants as your economy can possibly absorb. And then some more, drive down labor costs and prop up the Ponzi scheme that is, you know, real estate in central Canada that is the cornerstone of our economy. It could be 30, I don't know, 30% of our total GDP here. And it's all uh, sustained and insured and guaranteed by relentless population growth enabled by federal immigration policy that interestingly, and this is my final part of this rant, brings in more people from lower emitting countries on a per capita basis into one of the highest per capita emitting countries in the world. So the net effects on climate from our immigration policy are negative for the globe, but they're also negative to the country overall because soaring population growth is at the rate that this government is engaged in, three to four times over the historical average of the last few decades, this in terms of our total GHG emissions just puts all of our, our commitments to Paris and all these other agreements further and further out of reach. And then all the burden to close that impossible gap is now assigned to Western Canada and Alberta and Saskatchewan to do the heavy lifting yeah, I, I, you just you could not come up with a set of policies that is more likely to cause division and rancor in this country. Yeah, well said, Rudyard. Um, and I, I come back to my earlier point, and you're you're putting that type of regional conflict on the table for a set of goals that just strike me as completely implausible. You know, the Trudeau government came to office in 2015 with, uh, I think, good intentions about 
being concrete about its climate goals and having a, a, an attendant plan to actually meet the goals. Because of course, the history, the modern history of Canadian climate targets is that they get set um, and then governments essentially do nothing or very little to, to actually achieve them. And I think the first several years of the Trudeau government, we saw action and rhetoric and aspirational goals largely in alignment. Um, but I think what we're increasingly seeing from the government and I don't know if it's politics or ideology or whatever, um, a growing number of climate goals and targets without that accompanying uh, action. Um, you know, we've talked previously on this podcast about um, the the current government policy to essentially get rid of the internal combustion engine in 2035. All new vehicles sold in this country uh, are will be uh, mandated to be electric. I mean, it's just entirely implausible. I mean, if, for that to even have potential Rudyard, we would have to see such massive action being taken now in terms of ramping up, um, uh, ramping up uh, infrastructure, uh, in terms of um, ex massively expanding kind of production, an effort to sort of socialize the public. Um, you know, in terms of their consumer habits and so on, like I'm prepared to bet most of my um, credibility and personal wealth such that it is um, that that that's a goal that will not be met um, in uh, 12 or 13 years. And it seems to me this this new one around uh, net zero electricity in 12 to 13 years similarly won't be met. Um, the scale of investment and construction um uh, that would have to be undertaken now um, to, to meet such a goal, to say nothing, as you say, of the potential disruption and destabilization and economic costs of such a, a massive transition in such a short period of time. Um, it, it just strikes me as completely implausible. So we have a government that is increasingly kind of abandoning its, I think it's, it's, it's past efforts to ensure that the, the goals that it was setting um, were achievable and that the policies that they were rolling out um, would would help to meet those uh, those goals to now, you know, what increasingly seem like political documents that don't have, you know, just that, that just seem implausible. And, and yet, as you say, um, nevertheless, have this negative political uh, uh, effect in terms of, of of regional grievance and so on. I'll turn it over to you in a second, but one other point just to underscore, because I, I think that this can be lost in this conversation. Um, the evidence tells us, Rudyard, that we don't just need to transition our current energy sources um, to net zero. All evidence points in the direction of a need for a massive expansion of, of energy and electricity uh, to, to fuel our economy. The Public Policy Forum, for instance, estimates that we'll need to essentially double electricity generating capacity um, by 2035 to, to account for the expansion of electric vehicles and, and buses and so on. So um, it's a very long way of saying, I guess, um, that, yes, we need to be building a lot. And, you know, that's something the hub talks a lot about. Um, but, you know, let's do that in a way that is reasonable, pragmatic. And ultimately achievable because you know there's nothing that breeds kind of cynicism more than politicians announcing future targets that everyone just looks at and says you know that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, just final comment. It just seems doesn't it just seem a little convenient that the the highest incident 
voting areas of the country that support the government exactly what they need to fuel and fund the basis of their economies, in this case, immigration to support uh, the real estate, you know, banking industrial complex that, <laughs> that runs the province of Ontario. And those parts of the country that don't seem to vote for the ruling government get it, it proverbially in the neck. I mean, they get the antithesis, the opposite. They get a kind of strategic strike against the very asset, in this case, oil and gas, which is responsible, like real estate is responsible in Ontario for their sustained prosperity. Surely we can walk and chew gum at the same time and figure out some kind of compromise that, you know, acknowledges the extent to which mass migration at the rate that we are involved in is not in any shape or fashion aligned with our supposed uh, greenhouse gas targets and climate uh, goals. It, it just can't be. You can't add massive population growth and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So where's the trade-off? Where's the compromise? Where is our ability to work together? Back on the other side with some analysis of the song, causing a bit of a sensation on circle left and the right, the center right in America has a new troubadour as Jack Mitchell, our resident poet at the hub wrote this week, emerged to capture the moment that we all find ourselves in right now when it comes to divisions around class and uh, economic inequality and this crazy economy uh, that we're all living. We'll have that for you right after this break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Canadian news organizations are facing a more uncertain future these days thanks to federal legislation requiring Google and Meta to pay for news. Big tech's threat to drop all news content in Canada could have a profound effect on many publishers. Some may well see their web traffic halved in the coming months. So what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thankfully, as a donor-driven charity supported by individuals and foundations, The Hub is thriving. We're rolling out new series, adding new voices, and seeing record engagement across our platforms. The Hub will continue to innovate and thrive, regardless of the new legislation and whatever Google and Meta do. This is true independence. We treasure it, and maintaining it is our promise to you. If you value independent thinking on the big issues of the day, consider becoming a Hub donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Oliver 
Anthony. How many downloads, Sean, now to date? This guy over a little over 10 days has gone from zero to what? Well, YouTube, he's the, the original video is now north of 20 million views. Um, and he did a concert last Sunday, Rudyard, uh, at a small farmer's market that he used to typically get 20 people to attend. And uh, there were thousands, including some who had flown in from other parts of the country. So this is 12, 12,000. <laughs> this is, uh, a, you know, a, a, a genuine overnight sensation that, as you say, like anything these days in America, is suddenly um, the subject of cultural and political debate. Mm -hmm. Before we get to that debate, though, it's interesting just to say a few things about Oliver Anthony. I mean, he is a kind of version of our everyman, isn't he? he this is a guy who uh, acknowledges, you know, his struggles with alcohol and uh, addiction, a high school dropout, um, someone who's, uh, you know, born to some extent, the kind of brunt of this uh, change in the American economy uh, to intangibles away from, um, you know, the valorization of what you might call blue collar um, work. Um, what's your take there of Oliver Anthony, the person, Sean? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he, he kind of personifies the... Um, the so-called forgotten man, right? You know, he's from the Appalachia. Um, he has worked, as you say, in the kind of goods producing part of the economy, the one that doesn't, um, you know, have necessarily have lobbyists or whatever in, in Washington. Um, but I think that persona is one of the reasons the song and, and his story has resonated so much. The other thing I'll say is, um, he has seems to have a kind of uncanny ability to understand the market and to understand his audience. You know, the the his success is, I think, his authenticity and his and the extent to which, as you say, he himself um, sort of is an expression of the ideas and um, that the song and his other songs are getting at. Um, but I mean, man, you <laughs> you know, a high paying advertising and PR firm couldn't kind of do what he has done, which is just to find the right kind of tone and approach and and all the rest to rolling this out mm -hmm. so successfully. It ought to be the subject of like future case studies in business school or something, because he yeah. he's he's clearly touched it, clearly touched an earth. This is the guy that Bud Light should have signed up as their spokesperson. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, now, let's get to the content, a little bit of the song. Um, it, it has some lines in here, which are, are kind of, yeah, in, in, a one, in a wonderful way, like very contemporary. He's kind of, he's got a line in there about the, uh, the surveillance uh, state kind of uh you know the these uh rich men north of richmond uh who all just want to have total control he's got an allusion uh to jeffrey epstein um in that line about i wish politicians would look out for minors and not just minors on islands somewhere so some you know some elbows being thrown here in this piece let's talk about the reaction to it 
the left, I sense, is having a little bit of trouble attacking him. I mean, they're finding these chinks in the song that they see as possibly, um, you know, discriminatory or uh, something other than progressive. But he's not an easy target to attack because in a lot of his personal pronouncements, his other YouTube videos, this is not a MAGA guy. He's not a porter. He doesn't seem to really have a, a political history prior to this internet-fueled startup. Yeah, exactly. And it it actually, I think, reflects um, a kind of deeper tension within modern progressivism because the Oliver Anthony's of the world historically would have been Democratic voters, right? Or in the, in the Canadian case, um, New Democratic voters or CCF voters in, in a world in which the left sort of saw the world through class-based lines. Um, but as the modern left has shifted from a focus on class to a focus on identity, um, someone like Anthony may not um, be part of the um, of the kind of progressive worldview or progressive coalition. So I, I, I think you're right to kind of sig point on this idea that the, the left is is kind of struggling what to make of this because I think it reflects a, this deeper tension going on within progressivism and the, you know, the subject of the realignment that we've talked about in the past that increasingly it's center-right parties or conservative parties that, um, that are the home to working class voters. Um, and, and so in that sense, it does have this kind of, you know, deeper meta, dynamic to it uh, about the kind of evolution of of modern politics in in western countries like the united states let's bring in our, our resident expert on um you know virginia contemporary virginia um folk protest uh, uh music and songwriting and that's amal Otter guzman uh the 20-something producer of the show i say that in in jest partly amal because i assume this is not uh, top of your uh, iTunes um, playlist. So therefore, in some ways, it's it's even more interesting to get your perspective on this uh, as someone who's living a very different reality with maybe some parallels, but geographically and otherwise from Oliver Anthony. What did you think of the song? Did it connect with you? I mean, we can all agree the vocals are amazing. Yeah, um, yeah I'd love, love your take. So I'm going to defend myself a little bit right here because I am a country music fan. I just didn't have the time to nice. do it because I just came back from Prince Edward Island on vacation. My brain is a bit mushy. So I'm going to defend myself right there. So while you guys were recording the other sections of this episode, I actually finally had the time to catch up and actually listen to it and read the lyrics. Overall, I think it's a really good song. Beautiful vocals. And a lot of what he's saying is true. A lot of what he's saying actually can be relatable, especially the lyric that where he says, do, 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 where did he say? My dog um, right here. Or ain't worth shit. Yeah, I'm just like, when he's, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I wanna... I think I'm getting a, a, a salary uh, increase hike here request subtly, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is yeah. fine. We should have that conversation, Amal. What, what does he say? I've, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay yeah <laughs> I, love that. I, I mean yeah that's something that a lot of us regardless of your political ideation relate to right now the economy is in disarray young people are struggling 
school, there's a lot of us who continue education, went to undergrad, who did a master's, who now are even PhD graduates can't even find a job that's worth anything. They can't even find a job. They can't even, and if they do find a job, it's way below their pay grade. So I think that's something that a lot of people, regardless of your background, can relate to. Another lyric that I found very interesting is this one where he says, young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. That can be relatable for a lot of young folks, especially men who feel like they don't have a place to belong maybe there are so many socioeconomic factors that are impacting men. And I think that's something that needs to be discussed, especially with me who believes in gender equality. We can't forget another 50% of the world. And that can be related to young men with suicide rates that can go with young men going into crime that can go with them doing drugs. I believe you say Oliver, he has been a victim of substance abuse himself so i think that's very interesting and that's something we should definitely take up thanks Amal. uh a lot to reflect on there sean um let me turn it over to you i think that's to me where this song you know seems to hit an emotional chord with people we know that this cohort i mean let's face it they've been subject to some injustice here okay some economic injustice um they've been to some degree forgotten, um, used and abused and kind of treated as kind of cannon fodder, uh, in this economy that we have right now, where you and I've talked about it, it just, everything that's intangible is privileged. If you're organizing zeros and ones, your life into pretty patterns, your life is largely set, or at least certainly more secure than the Oliver Anthony's world. You face very little regulation in terms of your industry and what you do. Uh, your jobs are portable. You get to work at home. As uh, Gerald Ford said about the U.S. presidency, it's indoor work and there's no heavy. Um, the rest of the economy, the economies that the Oliver and Anth- Oliver Anthony's work in, and I think song hits the core with everyone, regardless of their political stripe, especially because we know that these people have been getting screwed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, we've gone through this economic transformation um, and a lot of the, the the winners, including, you know, let's be frank, us, have told ourselves nice stories about how the economy has grown in the aggregate and, you know, um, we have redistribution programs and so on for those who... Who fall through the cracks, but I think what we can't look away from, Rudyard and, and Amal, uh, in the past several years is um, there are people in our countries and our societies who've experienced real loss as a result of those changes. Um, some of it is economic, of course, as you say, Rudyard, um, you know, but a lot of it has um, come to manifest itself in other pathologies, you know. Um, the so-called deaths of despair that um, are present in parts of the United States and in parts of Canada. I saw a statistic recently um, that the biggest or most significant cause of death for young Canadians is overdoses. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that one of the reasons this song is so powerful is it it, it forces us to confront the kind of costs and consequences of the collective choices that we've made. 
I'll give you the last word um, in a second, Rudyard. But the last thing I'll say is there is a tendency for figures like Oliver Anthony to emerge um, and then to be effectively adopted by one political team or the other. And it causes these people to kind of face, oftentimes before they even realize it, this forked road decision. And it's hard to come back from it, of course. Like once you go on Fox News, you've effectively picked a team. And so I think what's, you alluded to this earlier, what's really interesting about Oliver Anthony is so far, he seems to have enough of a head on his shoulders to resist those pulls. Um, and if he does, he can actually be the source, one hopes, of some kind of reconciliation in a way. Um, um, and so that'll be something I watch for in the coming weeks and months because he's clearly with us to stay. <laughs> um, you know, he's going to be a mega star. And I, I hope he, I hope that he has enough support and sense to resist becoming a kind of used for political or cultural ends. Um, and, and because I think if he doesn't, for the, all of the reasons that we've been discussing, um, he's he maybe Oliver Anthony is the person America needs right now. I don't know. It's gonna be the next Johnny Cash for sure. <laughs> here, here. What America needs, what Canada needs. Uh, let's follow this guy. Uh, it's gonna be fascinating to to uh, see the twists and turns of uh, Oliver Anthony's uh, rocket ship to uh, to stardom. Um, we will append uh, in the show notes of uh, for today's program the excellent uh, analysis Jack Mitchell, our resident poet of anthony's song breaking it down stanza by stanza check it out it's a terrific read uh also just a reminder that uh, we'll be continuing this show through the rest of august so tune in next week the 25th uh, lots of really exciting stuff for september kicking off at the hub we'll fill you in on that in the days and weeks to come uh and again really just appreciate everyone we're seeing record engagement across our platforms this summer. Really appreciate uh, lending your time and attention to the hub, our valued listeners and readers. Talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>